Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Kernakian. That's me. Do you like sometimes, Sean, how I let you introduce yourself and sometimes I introduce you like you're my, my little boy? That's very nice of you. Thank you for trusting me with that. Yeah. So Civil Civil Action is our podcast. Uh, we've been adding more podcasts that have to do with specific uh, individual subject matters. And today we're going to be covering civil procedure, four cases, important cases that are sort of tangentially related to civil procedure or practice tips, I think is maybe a better way to look at it. Uh, we also have um, some of our podcasts have lately been interviewing interesting lawyers on both sides of the aisle and some Unlike of us who are not interesting. Yeah, right. We That's why we need interesting lawyers. And that's then right. The other thing we're doing is, uh, in addition to interesting lawyers, we're talking about interesting topics. Recently, you did one about business interruption insurance and the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Shot, what are we doing today? Today, we're covering four very interesting cases. The first one has to do with the enforceability of a fee share agreement and the consequences of having a retainer that doesn't comply with all of the rules of professional conduct. So that's something that applies to everyone, both sides of the courtroom, um, on all types of cases. Uh, then we're going to look at a case that has to do with the computation of statute of limitations and what happens when there's an appeal pending. Uh, then we're going to look at the delayed discovery rule and um, how that impacts uh, MedMal types of cases. And lastly, we're going to look at the admissibility of expert testimony and, and the rule from a case called Sargon um, and, that, and how that applies in various situations. So where so, can people find us? Um, they can find us online at kbklawyers.com um, or on iTunes and Spotify or wherever else they listen to podcasts. They can reach out to us. We have other resources for lawyers out there. All our podcasts are on the website. Uh, little case summaries about the cases we cover are there. And so are some seminars and things that we put on. So, so the first case we're going to dive into today and our promise is to try to keep each analysis of each case to no more than about five minutes. The first case today is Hans versus Superstore Industries. And this is really a fee dispute between the law offices of Scott Miller and the law offices of Stephen Wastebrin. Uh, involves a uh, wage and hour class action case, which must have resulted in a pretty substantial uh, result because the fees were about $4.3 million to be divided between the two law firms I mentioned, as well as a referring attorney um, who got a, a chunk of the money for simply referring the case and getting it started. So this dispute involves um, uh, between these these two lawyers, as I previously said, and uh, award of attorney's fees are reviewed under an abuse of discretion standard. So the Court of Appeal looks at this dispute, and the real initial argument that was raised by the parties was that there wasn't a fee-sharing agreement that had been executed by the client. So we'll talk about that later, but that wasn't the ground that the court focused on in its evaluation. Right. The the, the trial court first um, found that there was some agreement between the parties, and that's how the fees were allocated between the parties. But one of them was arguing that that shouldn't uh, that that agreement shouldn't control that the agreement doesn't apply um, and it didn't comply with the uh, rules of professional conduct. So the court of appeal is looking at this from an abuse of discretion standpoint, and the court of appeal says that. Even if, uh, well, one party is arguing here that there wasn't sufficient 2200 um, 
attorney fee splitting disclosures in the agreement or that one of the class representatives um, withdrew his consent to the fee split. And they argued that that renders it unenforceable. The Court of Appeal kind of picks up on another thing that says, well, we're not so sure about that, but even if the fee agreement was not made unenforceable because of that reason, they conclude that the lack of the disclosure regarding not having malpractice insurance pursuant to uh, Rule of Professional Conduct 3-410 renders it unenforceable. Right. And Former Rule 3-410, which requires right. – it doesn't require like some states that you actually state that you do have malpractice insurance and, and put in there what you have. But California does require that if you have no malpractice insurance, you have to affirmatively state that. And I believe that if the circumstances change or you later learn that you didn't have malpractice insurance at the time of the agreement, you need to uh, make an affirmative representation of the client. And the public policy rationale is pretty clear, which is clients have a right to know if they're hiring a lawyer who, if the lawyer screws up, will have malpractice insurance to protect them. Yeah. And but the rule doesn't have doesn't specify the consequences of noncompliance with the rule. So what this court has to do is try to analogize to other cases out there that have certain consequences that are outlined. Um, and that consequence is typically unenforceability of the contract. Uh, so they look at a couple of cases, and we could talk about those. Uh, Brian, the first case they cover is the Callan case. And, and what was the kind of finding there? Well, I think what happened there is that the plaintiff lawyer didn't sign a substitution of attorney and didn't transfer the case file, which is a violation of the rules. And um, the the uh, the fee agreement as a result of that was unenforceable after discharge. So that was rule number one. The next case is, and that case, by the way, is Callan versus Deluke, in case you're keeping track. There's another case called Scolinus where there was an oral agreement to pay a referral fee, and that doesn't comply with former rule 2-200. We should mention, by the way, that these are the formal rules. The rules have recently been updated because if it isn't enough, the state bar every now and then likes to change the numbering on the rules to make our lives more difficult. And not just the numbering, they change the language just a little bit, so we're not going to tell you that the rule hasn't changed, only the number has changed. You should go out and look at these rules yourself, but yeah, that was Scalinos. The oral agreement didn't comply with 2-200. And then they look at another case called uh, Shepard Mullen. Nope, uh, nope. There's oh, one more before that. There's Macintosh. Macintosh, and that's Macintosh right. And uh, stands for the proposition that you can't share legal fees with a non-attorney. Uh, stunning, but apparently that's the law. So, um, And you can't collect your fees under those circumstances. So then we get to Shepard Mullen, Sean. Yeah, in Shepard Mullen, uh, Shepard Mullen versus JM Manufacturing, Shepard Mullen was representing JM as a defendant in, a, in, in one case. Then at the same time, different attorneys at Shepard Mullen were representing a party that was adverse to JM in another matter, the South Lake Tahoe Public Utility District. And the court said that's, that apparently that's a conflict of interest. That is a conflict of interest. Yeah, that's like a textbook conflict of interest. Right. Um, and the court said that you know there has to be disclosure, and um, South Lake Tahoe moved to successfully disqualify the law firm from representing JM in the other case, and they found that uh, it's unenforced. They found that the fee agreement is unenforceable. But right, go ahead, Brian. So no, so go ahead, Sean. I I was going to dive into the facts and circumstances of this case. Oh, sure. You've got yeah. more to say about Shepper Mullen. Go for it. Oh no, I was going to say, but here uh, the court explains that 
the the party that's seeking to enforce the fee agreement or seek some sort of fees is not left without recourse because a party that's looking for quantum merit compensation can still do it even if they had a non-compliant fee agreement uh, so long as they can show that the violations weren't willful or the the harm wasn't that severe. Right. So the rule is that even if for some reason your fee agreement is found to be not enforceable, generally speaking, you can claim quantum merit fees. But there is an exception to that. And where the lawyer may have engaged in clear and serious violations of duty, there may have been substantial breaches uh, of like fraud, fiduciary duty breaches, then the lawyer may not be able to claim any fee at all. However, that's not the case here. So ultimately, what they conclude is the case should go back and be considered to determine whether or not there was appropriate um, uh, appropriate uh, uh, quantum merit basis. One more thing, though, Sean, before we move on from this, is that they also cite a case entitled Martirosian and Associates versus Ursoff. And in that case, um, kind of the cautionary uh, tale for all contingency fee lawyers is, I guess, the lawyer handled the case, did a good job, was fired, and then nine days later, they settled the case for something like $3 million. And in that case, the court said, even under quantum Merowit principles, you may be entitled to most or all of your fees because you basically took the, the football all the way to the one yard line and then somebody else picked it up and carried it over. Yeah. So it's good to follow those rules. There's some recourse if you accidentally don't, but just try to follow the rules so you won't end up in that dilemma to begin with. Okay, the next case we have is from the Second District Court of Appeal. It's Fenimore versus the Regents of the University of California. It originates in the Los Angeles Superior Court. And what are the facts of this case, Brian? Uh, timing in this case is really important. The, the, the facts are basically that this case started out as a potentially a healthcare case and turned into a nursing home type of case, elder abuse type of case. But um, in March of 2013, um, the decedent, uh, falls and fractures his ankle. He gets transferred, fractures his hip rather, gets transferred to another hospital and yet another hospital, all of them part of the UCLA hospitals, which is part of the regents. Um, ultimately, what happens is he dies from uh, severe bed sores, which is a horrible, horrible way to go in July of 2013. Now, keep that date in mind, July of 2013. What happens next? So the plaintiffs here file a complaint um, against various entities, various hospitals in the region system, and they allege, among other things, um, elder abuse. And the defendant files a demur and uh, argues that the standard for elder abuse isn't met because you need more than just regular negligence, gross negligence. You need something, uh, you need a higher standard of culpability in those types of cases in order to avail yourself to the special damages that you can get under the elder abuse statute. And the court says, well, that's not alleged here. Um, and they dismiss the case. Uh, and uh, then Fenimore comes back and seeks, and that goes up on appeal, and the court kicks it back. And uh, Fenimore seeks leave to amend after the case comes back and seeks to add uh, add complaints about, uh, add allegations about the pressure sores and things like that so they can meet the elder abuse standard. And then the defendants file a summary judgment motion arguing that the statute of limitations, um, or, or sorry, they don't file a summary judgment motion. The motion to amend is denied and the uh, based on the claim that the statute of limitations is now blown. Right, which would have been accurate if in fact he, um 
made these allegations without the intervening appeal because the motion to am- for leave to amend was in October of 2016, more than three years after the decedent died. However, what the court says here is that the uh, the trial court made an incorrect timing computation. And uh, they, in fact, I guess during oral argument, the hospital must have even conceded it because the two-year clock started when he died, which is October, July of 2013. 2013. But then what happened? Then the appeal in the first case, in, in the first time this went up on appeal, that tolls the clock. And that notice of appeal was filed February of 2015, less than two years after July of 2013. And then it's told until notice uh, until the issuance of remitter, which is the court of appeal kicking it back down to the state court, and that wasn't issued until July of 2016. So the the, the clock is paused basically from February of 2015 until July of 2016. And Fenimore brought his motion to amend on October 7 of 2016, as Brian said, and that's within the two year period. So right. And the last note about this case is that I guess the hospitals must have conceded the timing was wrong because of the tolling. But then they came up with a new argument that the uh, Court of Appeal, this is a second district court of appeal, by the way, the Court of Appeal gave exactly one little paragraph of, of merit to. And they said the hospital suggesting that it came from different injuries from different instrumentalities and the second amendment complaint uh, should have been thrown out because of that. And then the court says their suggestion seems to be that there's no pertinent relationship between a 92-year-old's broken hip and bed sores revolti- re- resulting from his immobilization caused by the broken hip uh, is without merit. So um, obviously that was a throwaway argument. Yeah. So you know, keep in mind, uh, appeal pauses that clock from running. So make sure you keep track of that and calculate it correctly. Talk about comes from the Fifth District Court of Appeal. It's Brewer versus Remington and uh, originated uh, in Stanislaw County. And this has to do with the delayed discovery rule. So the facts are fairly straightforward, unfortunate set of facts. The plaintiff here, Judith Brewer, goes in for a, a uh, goes in for a surgery on her wrist for uh, for carpal tunnel and as well as short, shoulder surgery. Wakes up from the surgery paralyzed. So something clearly went wrong. Then the defendant in this case, Benjamin Remington, a doctor, performs a spinal decompression surgery to try to help her recover from the paralysis. And that doesn't go well either. It doesn't go as planned. Um, Originally, the case was filed against a set of doctors that did the carpal tunnel surgery and not against Remington, who did the decompression surgery. Okay, so dates are important here. And first is important is that he came out, she came out of the second surgery with no better results. The, and this, the surgery originally occurred, the first surgery was in April of 2013. Um, the, the second surgery was in May of 2013. Uh, timely files a lawsuit against the original doctors, right? But it isn't until July of 2015 when an expert's reviewing the medical records that expert opines that it was the second doctor who had breached the standard of care uh, while providing some kind of neurological surgery or consultation. So now you are uh, more than two years past the second surgery, and so technically you're outside of the one-year statute of limitations. Yeah, and it wasn't until July of 2015, and keep in mind the original surgery happened, the two surgeries happened in April and May of 2013, so we're well beyond 
two years at this point, July 2015, they file their, uh, they doe in Remington, the, uh, the appellant in this case. So Remington argues that the, this is in violation of the statute of limitations, files a summary judgment motion, and the court grants the summary judgment motion. So this is really rule number one or sort of the procedural civil procedure thing that comes out of this is upon the granting of a summary judgment motion where you lose and your case is done, um, you do have a remedy short of filing a notice of appeal. You can file a motion for new trial. So just like getting your case thrown out of trial, you can actually file a motion for new trial after your summary judgment, not adjudication, but judgments granted. So, and I bet most people didn't know that. So you can file that new trial motion and explain, here's where the court got it wrong. Maybe the court didn't look at this fact. And it kind of gives you a second bite at that apple. um, And you have another shot there before filing your appeal and waiting a really long time. Here, the trial court says, yeah, looks like we screwed up. And that's right. There's delayed discovery here because the plaintiff couldn't have known that Remington's the one that caused the injury. So the court says, all right, I I, I screwed up here. I'm I'm going to grant a new trial, even though it's not a real trial, but I'm going to grant the motion for you trial and reinstate the case right so and then- that's what makes it what makes it interesting though is that um while a defendant who loses a summary judgment motion only has the right of a writ to file a writ petition in other words doesn't have the right of a direct appeal the granting of a motion for new trial after basically resulted in the same thing the defendant losing the summary judgment motion does have the right of a direct appeal yeah. You, anytime you get a new trial motion granted, you can directly uh, appeal that. Or, right. or you, yeah, it, it even gets more interesting than that from a wonky procedural point of view, which is that the normally the order granting a, um, a motion for a new trial is almost never reversed, almost never reversed because it's subject to uh, substantial evidence. However, because here it's a motion for summary judgment, it's reviewed de novo. Yeah, very interesting procedural kind of uh, details here that you got to pay attention to. So anyway, on appeal, uh, Remington here is arguing, the defendant is arguing that they knew, the, the plaintiff here knew that someone was negligent and it doesn't matter and that's what triggers the clock and not when the one discover, year, the yeah. one year statute of limitations. So remember, with ma- medical malpractice, it's a one year statute of limitations. However, there's a three year outside discovery rule. So it really operates like a statute of repose. You can file within one year or three years at the outside if you can allege sufficiently discovery. Yeah. And over Delayed here, discovery. Remington is arguing that the plaintiff knew that something happened, that someone was negligent. That's when the that's when the, the clock that Brian was talking about starts and not when you discover how that person was negligent. And the court dives into an analysis of that. Right, but the, one of the things the court says is that an unsatisfactory outcome or naturally occurring side effects do not necessarily place a layperson on notice of a medical doctor's um negligence or med- medical professionals negligence. So really the court comes down with a couple of rules and I think these are important for the, the the purpose of the case. So since I think that this case is important because of the procedural rules after the granting of any summary judgment motion, whether it's medical malpractice or not, the other is the rules with respect to medical malpractice. And the general rule is that harm resulting from treatment may not be always objectively appreciable. And here's the actual rule itself that the court sets out. The accrual period under CCP section 340.5, that's the medical malpractice statute, commences when there has been, from an objective standard, 
a manifestation of appreciable harm that would put a reasonable person on inquiry notice of wrongdoing. So for example, Shant, if there were a death following a surgery, what would you say the, the statute of limitations would be for that? For medical malpractice? Yes, sir. After the surgery, it would be a year from the surgery. Or a year, for, a year from the death. But where the person doesn't necessarily die and doesn't realize the, the effects, especially when there's been multiple treatments, it might be a longer statute. Right. It might be when they discover what caused that death. So just because they died doesn't mean that that's when the statute starts. That's exactly right. The court focuses on discovering when that thing happened and by whom it occurred um, in order to con- uh, calculate the statute there. So so our last case today is San Francisco Print Media Company versus the Hearst Corporation. That would be William Randolph Hearst, although he's not a defendant in the case. Why is he not a defendant in the case, Sean? He's not around anymore, I think. Right, right. And what famous movie was based on him? Oh, How do you remember. not know that? Wait, How do you not know Rosebud, that? Citizen Kane? Yes. Okay, there you yes. go. So okay. you got it. So what we know about this case is that it's super wonky and it probably won't apply specifically to anybody's practice. But the first issue in the case was what was the case based on? Talk about that briefly. Sure. The, the, the allegation in the case is under the UPA, the Unfair Practices Act, which basically says that you cannot, for, in order to violate the UPA, you need a person who's selling a product below cost for the purpose of injuring competitors. So there's like an intent requirement. There's a very technical and lengthy cost analysis that has to be done for determining cost. It's not, it doesn't generally involve selling a widget that's manufactured at a dollar for less than a dollar. And as you can see here, that this has to do with selling advertising. So to calculate the cost of your advertising is a very difficult analysis that requires expert analysis, as we'll learn. Um, and you have to show that there was uh, an intent to injure competitors. So the focus here is on the cost calculation. And the plaintiff here retained an expert who didn't, who wasn't an expert in calculating these UPA type of cost analyses. And admitted it. And admitted it, and instead relied upon a some sort of a cost estimate or, or calculation that was done by plaintiff's own in-house type of accountant, um, who had a tab on a spreadsheet that was called the break-even numbers, and he just took these for he, he just took them and used them as his foundation and argued that this is the cost. This, the break-even number is the cost. The guy that did that analysis also conceded that he he didn't he didn't know how to do a UPA cost analysis. So the defendant here filed a summary judgment motion um, and under this uh, this case called, or, or first filed a motion to exclude the expert's testimony right. and opinions under a case called Sargon. And Brian will talk about that in a second. And then once he was excluded, the court, gra- court granted it, he gets excluded. They file a summary judgment motion and their case basically falls apart without that expert analysis because they concede that they're not going to do an individual analysis of every uh, advertiser's or every customer's uh, purchase of advertising. Instead, they were just going to rely on an overall theme. Well, their overall analysis is now gone, so their case gets thrown out, and that's how it ends up on appeal. But Sargon is the key here, and yeah, that's so what will pertain to Sargon versus the University of Southern California is a California Supreme Court case of a few years ago, not many years ago, a few years ago. And at the time Sargon came out, uh, my initial impression of it was, okay, but doesn't the law say that anyways? And my fear has been that 
Sargon, you know, has probably as much good as it has bad for for the plaintiff's bar or for both sides, really. Um, because what Sargon talks about is the judge is acting as the gatekeeper for experts. Now, we all know that you have Section 802, the evidence code, which permits a court to make an inquiry into the basis for an expert's opinion, and Section 402, which allows for during trial there to be a hearing to determine whether or not the expert has reasonable basis for their opinion. So ultimately, the standard in Sargon is um, that the judge acting as a gatekeeper must determine whether or not the opinion is rooted in sound logic. So uh, I, I get it because we don't want experts on the stand who are making shit up. That's the standard, isn't it, Sean? Right, making shit right. up. They, they say, that, uh, Sargon says specifically that the opinion may not be on assumptions of facts without evidentiary support or on speculative or conjectural factors. And or, here, or making or shit up. Making shit up. Yes, that's a very eloquent, eloquent legal principle there, making shit up. And here, the court says, just because he's relying on somebody else's analysis doesn't mean that the person that prepared that analysis isn't making shit up. Um, right. And as we know, there's the Sanchez case, which says you can't rely on hearsay. Um, and that's sort of another thing that's happening here. But really, Sargon says you can't just rely on unreliable things. So it sets Deeper up that. Deeper dive. And the, um, I, won't, I won't give the case citations out because it's not that important. But the, uh, the losing party in this case specifically cites earlier decisions and the court rejects them as being predating Sargon. So they're taking a wide view of Sargon. You need to take a wide view of Sargon. Uh, it's, it is equal parts dangerous to have bad experts as it is to give judges the ability to throw out experts for what they perceive as the danger. And then, uh, finish it off, Sean, by talking about sort of the procedural issue here that happened at the end. Um, well, one, one more thing to point out here uh, that the plaintiff tried to argue on appeal was it was improper to exclude the entire cost analysis because some of it might have been valid. And the court says that this is the first time you're raising it on appeal. So you can't you can't rely on that. You never reserved your right. And um, that's not that that's not something you can do. So what ends up happening to this, Brian? Plus, that's the, the last procedural issue in the case is that the um, because they didn't hedge their bets. They lost the motion and and effectively lost the ability to use this expert. The case cratered on summary judgment. So in quick succession, they didn't have a backup plan. And of course, easy to Monday morning quarterback for us, but they didn't have a backup plan. So the case uh, tanked as a result of it. And that's that all we got today. That's all we got on that case. That's all we got for our four cases. Hope you uh, enjoyed listening to these interesting civil procedure cases. I was telling Sean before we started the show today that every time I read these cases, I see facts and circumstances here that are applicable right now in our practice in active cases. And I hope you do too. Yeah, I, uh, we appreciate your feedback. We appreciate you tuning in to listen to this. It's teaching us a lot. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to do this. And we hope you tune in again. Thanks a lot.